You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. On Worldview this week, the deportation of refugees from Greece to Turkey are underway under the new EU Ankara deal. But the process is not easy and controversial. We'll be hearing from Greece about how the deal is going down there and from Strasbourg where MEPs are debating the issue. The Panama Papers have cast a shadow over David Cameron, not just with the suggestions that he and his father may have been involved in tax avoidance, but also in that the deft political touch that has been attributed to him may have deserted him. And we'll be hearing about a radical new German perspective on the future of the EU as a republic. I'm Patrick Smith. Worldview is an Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our global network of correspondents. I'll be joined by our correspondents in Greece, Brussels and London, Damien Macanula, Suzanne Lynch and Dennis Staunton, and by Derek Scully in Berlin with Professor Ulrike Gero. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week. First to Greece and our correspondent Damien Macanola and Suzanne Lynch in Strasbourg, where MEPs are this week debating the EU's deal with Turkey to push back refugees from Greece in exchange for resettling other asylum seekers inside Turkey. There are now some 2.7 million Syrians in Turkey. Damon, you're just back from one of the islands, Lesbos, where you watched the beginning of the deportations. I believe about 5,000 people are now in detention on four Greek islands. How smoothly was it going and how are the locals and the refugees responding? Well, it was a very it was a very peculiar uh, event because, as you mentioned, the the uh, the deportations began on Monday morning, which was really the first day that the new regime uh, introduced by the March twentieth agreement between uh, EU, the EU and Turkey uh, came into force. So uh, there were a lot of people saying that actually those deportations were were could have already happened under previous arrangements uh, with Turkey, and that uh, the people who were uh, deported. Uh, are not um, the people who are, are 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 most affected by the March 20th agreement? So Syrian, uh, uh, Iraqi, and, and refugees from other countries. Uh, it went very smoothly. Uh, Frontex officers, that's the EU Border Protection Force, they carried out the the deportations. They said they were doing it on at the request of the Greek authorities. Um, the 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 breakdown of the 202 people who were first sent. Uh, on Monday, with uh, again chiefly mainly from uh, countries like uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, there were Sri Lankans, uh, uh, Nepalese, and people from some uh, some African countries. So what we didn't see uh, on the Monday morning, or we haven't seen yet, are are really the difficult cases. Uh, one of the Frontex officers, uh, our spokespeople, did say that at the port on Monday that the people sent back initially were were so-called easy cases, but um, yeah, we d- we didn't see families, for example. There weren't many women uh, among among those uh, sent back. So that um, uh, potentially will is is to come, and I think that's when it's going to get more 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 difficult. Uh, but there've been reports in some of the the uh, the press about uh, some of the refugees threatening suicide if they're they're de- deported, and and some eight hundred inmates uh, broke out of. Uh, uh, a detention facility in Kios last week. Yeah, I mean there is a lot of frustration within the camps, and I think the frustration uh, a lot of it comes from the from the from the lack of information being provided to the people in there. Um, uh, I, I was up at the camp in Lesbos on Sunday night, uh, the, the evening before the deportations, I should say, and talking to people through the fence when it was possible because the police aren't too keen on 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 anybody talking to the people behind the wire. Uh, 
as a journalist, you end up answering more questions than than actually uh, fielding them. So you know, they were asking me what was going to happen to them. So Syrians were were saying whether you know uh, whether they could theoretically be deported. Afghans were wondering uh, why were they being discriminated against. This is how they see it uh, compared to to Syrian uh, to Syrians. So inside the camps, there is a lot of uh, frustration. Um, and, and, and that is uh, very much fueled by the by the lack of information being given to them by the authorities. There's uh, lawyers have complained about d- difficulties in accessing uh, the facility. So this is uh, uh, th- and this lack of information is also a problem more widespread within Greece among the 50,000 or so refugees and migrants who arrived before the deal. There's 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 uh, they don't really know uh, what is in store uh, for them. And uh, when they do, or the other problem is, of course, is that they, when it is explained to them, then they they have a difficulty in, in coming to terms with this new reality that the the, the borders are closed uh, in the Balkans and that they are facing um, quite a number of a considerable amount of time in Greece, um, possibly six seven months before their before their situation will change. And the, the the whole operation is predicated on a, on, on a, a massive fast tracking of the asylum application system, and is that happening? Well, it was as I said, this was all supposed to kick in on the Monday morning, uh, the morning that the deportations uh, began. But it quickly uh, turned out that the the staff from the European uh, Asylum Support Office uh, hadn't arrived. They they got down to work on Friday, and. Uh, one EASO, this asylum office, support office uh, official, told me that they had 70 people on the ground in, in Lesbos. So that that would take them, that would mean that it would take at least uh, 60 straight days' work to process the 3,000 or so people in the camp in Lesbos. And there's a lot of uh, questions being raised about uh, what this new procedure will involve because as the as EASO explained, they will now be making um, an assessment on accessibility uh, of each asylum applicant. And that basically rests around the question whether these people, whether there's a legitimate reason for these people not to be sent back to Turkey. So individual applicants will have to prove, um, and this is, what, this is what's been said, that they'll have to prove that there's a, a serious reason why they should not be sent back to Turkey. And, and that possibly could uh, then allow them to seek asylum in Greece. I mean, part of all of this is based on the idea that Turkey is a safe place to send them back. And But there are a lot of concerns about the legality of the, of the o- overall operation and indeed in the implementation. I gather 13 asylum seekers were allegedly deported from Kiosk by mi- mistake on the, on, the, on the first day. Is there much discussion there about the legality of the process? Well, there is uh, certainly among uh, human rights groups and NGOs who have been working with refugees and migrants over the last few months. They, they are they have raised these questions, and uh, until we can actually see what kind of percentages of people are being returned and who has been returned, it's very hard to know uh, what the uh, European Asylum Support Offices approach to accessibility will remain in concrete terms. Uh, the process will take two weeks. So if they, got to, if they got to work last Friday, as they said, we won't actually know until uh, Friday week uh, how many of the people uh, first assessed under this new system 
will be will be returned. We just have to see how how it really works out. I mean, how uh, whether you know Syrians, uh, how many Syrians, what percentage of Syrians, for example, can actually convince the the EASO officials that they should not be sent back to Turkey. Suzanne, there are many preoccupations uh, uh, of legal kind among uh, MEPs. Um, and what, what, what is the overall attitude there to the deal? Can it, can it stick? Well, Jean-Claude Juncker, the European Commission President, is due in Strasbourg on Wednesday morning to update MEPs on this deal. And he's likely to face some very serious questions. As you say, and as Damien has elucidated there, there are serious concerns about the legality of the system. Now, the European Union has got around this issue of blanket returns, which are prohibited under the Geneva Convention, by saying that every migrant arriving will have their claim for asylum processed. But as Damien is pointing out there, the people that have already been sent back are those people who had not, were not going to apply for asylum anyway. So really, where this gets tricky is when those people start um, taking part in this system um, and whether the Greek authorities can deal with that backlog. In saying that, I think a lot of other voices here in the European Union are saying obviously there are serious concerns about this uh, plan, but there are no other bright ideas. Uh, People are concerned that we have a system, a chaotic system, where more than a million people are entering the European Union um, and have no idea what's ahead of them, are paying people smugglers risking their money and their life. Uh, and um, that there is no coherent system. So I think there's an acceptance that something um, something specific has to be done by the EU. So arguably what's more important is that in the long term, the EU has to look at the whole asylum system here. The Dublin Convention, which uh, obliges refugees that arrive in a EU country to apply for asylum in that EU country, that system has effectively broken down completely because a number of countries have opened the doors to, to migrants. So Germany, for example, have said they're accepting asylum seekers even if they had first arrived in Greece. So the system has, has stopped working and the European Commission needs to seriously look at that and try and uh, propose a new system. So by the end of the year, by the summer, they're hoping to uh, to have unveiled a reform of the Dublin system. But already we're seeing a huge resistance here by a number of member states in East European who are vehemently opposed to any kind of quota system, for example, for refugees. So the European Union, in a sense, is in a bind because it's got some very, very different perspectives across the Union about how best to deal with refugees. And does this mean that the deal basically is in danger of collapsing or or does just do we find ourselves in a situation where Germany just takes up the slack? Well, I think the what's what effectively happened is in the first week of, of this deal happening is that 300 migrants were sent over from Greece to, to uh, Turkey and then less than 100 went, uh, about 75 were, were shipped, were, were moved um, from Turkey, Syrian refugees, to the EU. That's the, under the one-for-one one plan. But since then, there's been kind of a pause, if you like. So really what we're going to be looking for is that maybe, yes, in name, the deal will work, um, but whether how, how quick it will happen and how many people are actually being relocated. I mean, really, if people are honest, one of the main aims of this EU-Turkey deal is, is to access a deterrent, uh, is to try and put off migrants from, from coming this route. And so far, it seems to have worked. The numbers are down on the numbers of refugees coming into Greece. They haven't stopped by any means, uh, but they have reduced. 
moved. But of course, the whole question now has opened up about alternative routes. Already, we have seen the Italian Coast Guard reporting a huge upsurge in migrants coming through Libya across the Mediterranean. And as the weather improves, the summer months, there's going to be increasing concern that, yes, they may block off this route, but other routes uh, will open. For example, even through Finland, the huge border there, Russia, they reported an upsurge in migrants coming through that end, and also Bulgaria. So, you know, there is a fear here that it's a stopgap solution in any event, uh, and that it won't uh, it won't deal with the underlying problem of why uh, people are continuing to flee uh, war-torn uh, areas for Europe. Damien, what is the response inside Greece, uh, both in politics and, and in the community? And is this issue playing into Greece's own challenges with, the, with for example, the bailout? Well, uh, apart from the, the refugee and migrant populations on the island, there are, you know, 45 to 50,000 uh, refugees and migrants uh, uh, in, in, uh, in various parts of Greece, chiefly northern Greece, but in, also in the port of Piraeus near Athens. Uh, these are people who arrived before March 20th. So the, the authorities are, are now faced with the tax of, of, of trying to uh, accommodate these people in camps. The, the, the Greek army, the Greek military has erected about uh, 20 to 25 camps around the country. Uh, conditions vary uh, um, uh, among those. Uh, some of them are, 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 are model camps. Others lack uh, hot water and, and various other essential f- uh, facilities. So the government is, is faced with a big... Uh, task of trying to of trying to encourage the people who are in Piraeus. There's about four or five thousand people in Piraeus, encouraging them to leave the the terminal buildings where they are. Have some of them have been for forty or fifty days uh, to go into camps. And then there's also the problem uh, on on the northern border with uh, with Macedonia, where there were clashes over the weekend, uh, where where uh, the, the, some of the fifteen or so thousand uh, refugees and migrants. Uh, uh, at the border, try to try to break through. The, the government has a big task in trying to resettle these people, and and has has it become a matter of political controversy in 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 Greek politics. Well, hugely because at the weekend we had uh, there were those clashes on the border. Uh, police from the from the northern state from the northern state of Macedonia uh, fired you know a huge amount of, of tear gas and rubber bullets uh, at the migrants. Uh, there were claims that some of the Macedonian officials entered Greek territory. So that's a very very sensitive issue uh, for Greece because uh, Greece is at, at loggerheads. Uh, with the northern state over its name. That's uh, an ongoing uh, dispute for, that has gone on for almost three decades. Uh, internally, uh, yes, it is. Uh, the, the, the government uh, has uh, a huge task in its negotiations with its creditors. Uh, they, they failed to produce uh, an, an agreement today and they've been, they've been uh, put off for, uh, meetings have been put off for another few days. So the government has you know, quite a tall order on its on a, on its on its plate. It's, it's trying to deal with the creditors, and it's also trying to get to grips with this uh, with the huge refugee migrant uh, in, in accommodating uh, the the the, the fifty thousand or so refugees and migrants who arrived in the country before April twentieth. Thank you very much, Damien and Suzanne. It's been a bad couple of weeks for David Cameron, most particularly because of his mishandling of the Panama Paper revelations that his father used offshore companies to stash earnings. It took five days for Cameron to admit he had benefited. His credibility and competence have both taken a hammering, on top of which he's had difficulties with the Tata pullout from Port Talbot, the resignation of Ian Duncan Smith and the Brexit campaign. Dennis... Uh, Cameron came out fighting yesterday, trying to shift the focus to Labour, calling for the British uh, British politicians 
to open up their own personal uh, finances. More of that is apparently to come. Uh, and he is uh, insisting, after all, that he's an international champion of the anti-tax evasion campaign uh, and announced a new register for uh, the, 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 the Dominions. Is he getting through this? Is he is he coming out on top of it? I think his performance in the House of Commons uh, on Monday was very effective, partly because uh, he's a very good performer in these uh, in the on these occasions, but also because some of his critics probably overplay their hand. Uh, there were two elements to uh, to the to the story of his tax affairs. One was that his father. Ian Cameron, who was a stockbroker who died in 2010, had uh, run an offshore investment fund, which was mentioned in the Panama Papers. And uh, as you say, it took David Cameron quite some time to acknowledge that he actually had at one stage held shares himself in this offshore investment fund from 1997 until he sold them just before he became prime minister, sold them in 2010. And uh, now there's no suggestion uh, by anybody that actually that there was anything illegal or that there was any, uh, you know, that David Cameron didn't pay his fair share of tax or indeed his proper share of tax, should we say. Uh, but nonetheless, the, the, the information did seem to have to be dragged out of him. And so that made him look a bit shifty. So what he did then over the weekend was that he he decided to publish a summary of his tax return. And in that tax return, there was uh, <clears throat> there was uh, uh, information about a payment of, two payments of £100,000 each from his mother to David Cameron. And she appears to have been doing something that quite a lot of people do when they're planning their estates, which is that they give money early and if uh, his mother survives seven years after this gift is given, then uh, he won't have to pay inheritance tax on it. And so uh, so once uh, his critics started to go uh, criticise him over this, he then found himself on rather safe terrain where conservative MPs and conservative supporters are because he found himself going out and defending the right of parents to pass on wealth to their children. And that's something which was able to bring the Daily Mail with a full page editorial demanding that he should defend inheritance and, in fact, go on and abolish inheritance tax altogether. And it also uh, meant that his conservative backbenchers, many of whom don't particularly like him at the moment because of the European referendum, nonetheless found themselves cheering him on. So I think that uh, that uh, he, he did probably uh, do himself rather a lot of good yesterday. And the hope now on the part of the government is that while some of the senior people in the government and in the opposition have published their tax returns, that uh, they wanted to stop there because quite a lot of MPs are rather uncomfortable about the idea that this would suddenly uh, lead to a great flood of transparency and they don't want uh, everybody to have to do this. And of course what the politicians have been saying is that if politicians are supposed to, are going to have to do it then maybe the journalists, for example who are uh, calling them to account maybe they should start publishing their financial details too. Are you going to publish your offshore accounts? I, I'd, I'd be happy to if I had the, if I had any. Happily I have none whatsoever. The Guardian says that he may have convinced MPs yesterday but the public is another matter. Uh, yes, uh, although I, th I think that the, the public, in a way, uh, probably finds itself feeling a number of different things. One is that it's reinforced the idea that David Cameron is a very wealthy, very privileged person, as indeed is George Osborne, his Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, but at the same time, I think that most people don't believe that he actually has done anything particularly wrong, apart from being, as I say, a little bit shifty about it last week. But this sense of him being... 
uh, unlike other people. And says uh, the sense of him being a bit out of touch. The idea that it's a very normal thing for your parents to be able to uh, give you a, a present of two hundred thousand uh, pounds, you know, before you actually inherit the rest of your inheritance, is something that obviously most people in Britain couldn't identify with because they're not going to see anything like two hundred thousand uh, pounds as a gift from anybody. And so, uh, so I think that th that that does reinforce this sense that he's perhaps. Uh, you know, not in touch with ordinary people. But that's something that was there all the time. I think, though, to go back to what you were saying in your introduction, this actually is just the latest in a series of setbacks and, a, uh, you know, that you had a mishandling of the closing of, the, or at least the sale of this uh, steel plant in Port Talbot in Wales, uh, a mishandling of a whole series of different elements of policy, including some stuff that went on in the uh, in the budget. There was the resignation of Ian Duncan Smith. And all of this uh, can serve to undermine uh, David Cameron's authority. And that's something that is is really obviously very important for a politician at any time. It's particularly important for David Cameron now as he's really leading the campaign to keep Britain in the European Union. And David Cameron's authority is such a huge part of the case for remaining in the European Union that uh, it would be uh, quite damaging to that campaign if this uh, undermining were to continue or if you were to have too many more setbacks in the next few weeks. Yes, indeed, that's what I was going to ask you about next. And where is the polling at the moment on in terms of the Remain um, versus Brexit? The polls mostly show them uh, pretty close. But having said that, uh, if you look at, uh, at all of the polls over the last uh, few weeks, you will find that m almost all of them show the Remain side ahead. Now, it varies as to how much they're ahead, uh, online polls tend to show them closer. Uh, polls conducted by telephone uh, show the Remain side of the bigger lead. Having said that, there's a certain nervousness. There's nervousness on both sides, actually. That the the, uh, the Leave side are very divided. They don't like one another. And if you meet any of them, they'll all complain that uh, you know other elements of the Leave campaign are making sure that they're all going to lose. So they're a bit uh, gloomy about their prospects. But there is some anxiety on the Remain side as well, that uh, their campaign isn't very exciting, that there's no passion, that nobody is, uh, or very few people want to stay in the European Union because they like it. It's just really because they're, a bit, they're afraid to leave. And that there is also this fear that a lot of the younger people uh, that the the Remain campaign will need to win the referendum, that they just mightn't be uh, motivated to turn up. Uh, there's one further element uh, to all of this which also worries the Remain campaign, and that's the role of the Labour Party. Uh, the Labour Party is uh, in favour of uh, staying in the European Union and is campaigning uh, for that. Jeremy Corbyn on Thursday will make his first speech of the campaign. But there is a sense that uh, Jeremy Corbyn has never been uh, in favour of the European Union. He's voted against practically every pro-EU measure in the House of Commons over the last 30 years. And that he uh, is not really the best candidate, in a sense, to motivate his people to go out and uh, campaign and to, and to vote. And if Labour voters don't show up and vote in uh, in decent numbers, then the uh, the referendum could go against the Remain side. And in terms of, of, of David Cameron, there's a general consensus, I gather, emerging that if he do, if he loses this one, he definitely has to resign. 
Yes, he says that he won't. But, uh, you know, having said that, I think that the reality, it would be such a blow, rather in the same way that if he had uh, lost the Scottish independence referendum, he would have undoubtedly uh, resigned the following day. And I think that uh, the consensus is that actually he couldn't survive uh, as prime minister uh, if the Britain votes to leave the European Union. Thank you very much, Dennis. You're listening to The Irish Times. Professor Ulrike Gero founder and director of the European Democracy Lab at the European School of Governance in Berlin, has been at the heart of German and EU policymaking for two decades. In recent years, she's been articulating a new vision for European politics, in which the nation-states are pushed aside to be replaced by a republic of equal citizens. Her new book has been warmly well-received in, in Germany, and our Berlin correspondent, Derek Scali, has been talking to her. Professor Gero, what is a European republic? The European Republic is the idea to make the political union of Europe real and to basically embed the project of the European uh, Union, which was a project around the single market, into a political project, which was the promise of 92 and the Maastricht Treaty. And I think it's time to get there. Why? Um, because we have been seeing many crises now in Europe. There's Brexit, there's Grexit, there is the monetary union crisis, banking crisis and the refugee crisis which came on top. We have seen the European Union mostly unable to cope with this and basically it cannot cope with this because nation states are always torpedoing the European interest. And uh, the second reason is that if we pretend to do a political entity on the political on the European continent, which is still the aim of the European project, then we need to have one thing clear. Political entity necessitates the uh, equality of all citizens. And this is not given in the current project, and this is why we are not um, going for political union. And yet if I was a European citizen or an Irish citizen or a French citizen, it seems to me that the European brand is quite damaged after all of these crises. I would be quite sceptical of more Europe. Surely Europe has shown itself to be uh, damaged, but you're saying it's the nation states that have damaged Europe, and that's why we need more Europe. We do not need more Europe. What I'm suggesting is that we really need to do a different Europe. We started from a single market project. The single market project uh, was uh, sort of good in the beginning because it created prosperity and it did a lot of good things, but it never was accomplished in a way. Let's remember for a second that in 92 we signed for two inter intergovernmental conferences, one about the monetary union, which unfolded in 2002 when we did the euro, but one, which was the political union project, basically never unfolded. Folded. We had a couple of uh, uh, constitutional projects which all failed and what we never reached is a, a situation where we have a transnational European parliamentarism, a real ownership for citizens and we do not have a system which basically guarantee protection for the citizens because we always play a market more or less against the citizens but beyond that we do not allow equality for citizens, meaning voting equality, tax equality and simply equality in front of the law. So if if people are not equal, and that is the basics of political theory starting from Cicero and Aristoteles, if citizens are not equal towards the law, they cannot create a political entity. So if that is still the project for Europe, I'm not talking the EU, but for Europe, then that should be reached in next time soon, just because the EU, as now it is, is in a pretty mess. So you're talking about a transnational republic bringing people together. How would this be constructed? Well, um, 
my idea and it's just a dis suggestion for discussion is that we indeed deconstruct the nation state also because we do have three big elephants in the room of the European Union which are basically the United Kingdom, France and Germany so not all nation states are equal to say that up front Estonia or Malta are not Germany and so there is a, a permanent struggle of the role of nation states in the European Union project and uh, to overcome this in the book I wrote which is the book which is an Utopia. I, I, I choose uh, on purpose the, the, the literary category of an utopian uh, suggestion, but is to deconstruct the nation state and to make regions. Um, and the regions are basically what you find if you look at European maps, say, of the Middle Ages, and you find regions like uh, Savoyen or Mähren or Böhmen or Tyrol or Catalonia or Scotland, which are basically the natural regions, uh, cultural regions of Europe. And in my project, I design those as as the constitutional carriers under the roof of a European Republic which would guarantee the same law uh, on the basis of equality for all the citizens living in that political entity. But your vision would pre presuppose that nation states and in particular the European Union would somehow abolish themselves or move over for this new entity. Why would they do that? Well, obviously they would probably obstruct, um, but uh, that happened many times in history that uh, you basically had a constitutional meltdown and something new came. I mean, if I look at Germany, for instance, Germany in the last 200 years had seven constitutional changes. We went from the Holy Empire of uh, Roman nation, we went to Deutsche Bund, to Deutsches Reich, uh, to Weimarer Republic, to the uh, divided Germany, to the united Germany. So there are always basically moments in history where political entities come down and new entities are created. We see the large bits of it in the Balkans. We saw it with Czechoslovakia breaking down in two nation states. So this is a sort of permanent historical process. And it's always an emancipatory process in a way. So um, yes, it's an utopian project. Yes, probably nation states and everybody depending on nation states uh, will probably object. But the book has been written for the people, for the people of Europe. And... Um, the thing I, uh, I'm, I'm realizing is that many people actually uh, start to like this idea and uh, it's basically a book written for society because we cannot do a political entity without looking at societies and the people living in these societies. So again, um, uh, the nation state is only one part of uh, sort of the, where the power is, but there are other carriers of um, societies. And I think for those it can be interesting. There people living in the regions, there are churches, there are trade unions, there are many people who actually do not necessarily uh, like the nation states. Looking at Germany, for instance, you have Bavaria, um, you have a couple of regions who uh, have an interest of being more or less self-governed, but which still would like to be uh, under the common roof of a European entity, because even Bavaria would probably not like to do foreign policy alone. Mm. Um, you spoke about something new coming from something that's difficult, but uh, the history of Europe, in particular the history of Germany, has shown things have to get a lot worse than they are at the present in Europe before things get better. Um, is this your fear that before the utopia we have to go through a hellish experience in Europe to actually have this moment when heads are knocked together or something bad actually happens so that something good can arise from the ashes? 
Well, I mean, this is pretty Hegelian, and yes, uh, I'm a good, I'm, I'm, I'm a true fan of Hegel, which is thesis, antithesis, and a new synthesis, and uh, basically that a new start is only in the destruction of something. That's also a Schumpeter for, and the th democracy theory of, of Schumpeter. So yes, there's something in it, which is that uh, obviously history is not progressive in the sort of Marxist sense that is uh, always progressive to a very end, but more or less always um, turning in circles. And um, so, yes, I, you know, I, I do not wish for a European dystopia. I do not wish for things coming worse than they are because they are already worse for many people here with the refugee crisis which we are experiencing. But um, to, on the positive side, what you can argue is that Europe had the 89 revolution, 1989. And that was, by the way, the first revolution which was a peaceful revolution where we did the constitutional meltdown of 10 Eastern European countries which joined the European Union. The whole thing was embedded in the Europe whole and free sort of movement of 89. I think this was very successful and I think we could connect to the common experience that on the European continent actually we can do peaceful revolutions. In your book you speak about your own personal experience of dedicating much of your working life to Europe and, and also your disillusionment not just with the European project or European promise but also Germany. Why, where did this disillusionment with Germany in Europe and Germany's vocation with Europe come from? Well, you know, I was very young, age 27, when I had the extreme chance to work for uh, Wolfgang Schäuble and Karl Lamas, who by then was the foreign spokesman of the CDU-CSU group of parliament. That was in the high time of the Maastricht Treaty making in 92, when the project of ever closer union was born. And it truly marked my life, because you are young and you... I started to be a true believer of that European project. And uh, 25 years after, I turned 50, and you see that we... we we lost, we lost the goal. We lost the goal of ever closer union. But still, we, we know that on this European continent, no nation state can survive alone. You would not argue probably that Estonia or Czech Republic or even Ireland uh, can do strategy or euro or climate protection alone. So we need to have a solution for the European continent. And out of that disillusion, personal disillusion that I, as you said, I worked in many think tanks doing policy advice, and I saw that we lost sort of the goal. And yes, the 89 moment was also for me, my country, the German moment of unification. And the promise by then, let's remind this, from Helmut Kohl was that European unification and uh, German unification are the same coin of uh, the same uh, two sides of the same medal. And I think there is an argument to make that Germany didn't hold that promise. Uh, by 26, when we had the soccer um, games, for the first time we had this renationalization moment and Germany was going nation again. When I was born, I'm actually born in the Federal Republic in 64, but now I'm living in Germany. And I think that little shift from Federal Republic to Germany says it all. It means that Germany got a national momentum, but the the very fact that Germany was sort of unnational before was the uh, was the the only way to do Europe. So um, in a way, the German national movement hit against the European perspective to get united. And for that, I think Germany still should hold promise that German unification and European unification belong together. And um, this can only happen in a transnational democracy, which is newly designed beyond the nation state. 
Last question. Um, the reaction so far to your book, as far as I can gather, is that young people are very enthusiastic about it, but people with whom you've worked your whole life professionally have been quite critical. Um, why do you think that is? Young people enthusiastic about Europe, which is not something we usually presume, and yet older people who've been working their whole lives in the European project um, looking critically at your attempt to move things on. I think it's still more differentiated. Yes, young people are enthusiastic. There are other parts of society which start to be a little enthusiastic, say more the left spectrum or trade unions or church people. Um, and yes, the young generation, but also elder people, especially elder people beyond 70. And they have experienced the war. They have experienced the after-war period. And they were also true believer in a true European project. And those people are as disappointed as is the young generation. So those who are arguing against the book is basically sort of people who are linked to, say, the political establishment and who are benefiting either from nation state or from position in the European Union. But it's not that you can say that there is a general generational dynamics that older people are against and young people are uh, in, in favor of it. It's more, uh, the fault line is more that many people, uh, and, and I have data in my book, um, the, there's still 70% in Europe which are for a political European project. The problem is that nation-state politicians tend to be chased by the 30% of populism, which we do have now in most of the European countries, including Germany, France, Hungary, Poland, and so on and so forth. So we do have an overall majority of roughly 70% of European citizens who would love to see a political project to be born. And against that, there's more people who are working in the current system who obviously are a little bit, um, say, uh, shaken up by my ideas. Professor Ulrike Giro, author of Why Europe Needs to Become a Republic, thank you very much. Thanks to Damien McAnulla, Suzanne Lynch, Dennis Staunton and Derek Scally, to our producer Declan Conlon and on sound Rob O'Sullivan. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week.